Father, as we gather around your throne this morning in the midst of all of the things that we as a community of believers are struggling with, each one of us has different issues. Each one of us has different problems and different struggles. And uh, pray, Lord, that your name would be glorified in the midst of it all. Pray for Taj. Lord, we lift him up to you in the name of Jesus, and we pray that your healing hands will be upon him. That as his doctors on that particular floor continue to struggle with what's going on and trying to get that fever down, Lord, we pray that you would continue to give them insight and wisdom. Father, that your hands would be upon Taj and that you would continue to fight off whatever infection is there because he, he has no ability to do that. Pray for your peace to be upon him, for your strength to be within him, for Patty as well, that you would give her peace, that you would give her a settledness in her heart and in her spirit, that you have got everything under control. Thank you for both of them, Lord, for, for their smiles, for their hearts, for their love of you and for their love of this community of believers. But Lord, we pray your peace be upon them and that your strength will be with them in the midst of all of the things that they've been dealing with as a family. We just lay them before you, Lord. I pray for, for Arnold as well and for his entire family, for Kevin, for Lisa, and for all of the grandkids as they gather together one last time to say goodbye. I pray that your peace would be upon them, that your Holy Spirit would touch their hearts and reach them. And that, Lord, that the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, would just guard their hearts and their minds. I pray, Lord, that your settledness in the midst of these storms, Lord, would help us all. I pray for anyone else within this body. There are many others, Lord, I know, that are in need of prayer. For, for Flossie's family, for, for Shirley and the, and the grandbaby, for Dave, for, for anybody else, Lord, that we may have missed pray that your grace would abound and that you would hear our prayer and that you would meet the needs of everybody that's here and that your Holy Spirit, Father, would lead us towards love and good deeds, love towards one another and good deeds for one another. Pray your peace be upon this place today and upon every family that's here and those who are in, in need of your comfort. Pray for those who are serving in our military, both here and abroad. We ask, Lord, for Brady's protection and, and his strength and his peace. We ask for Jonathan as, for his strength and his peace as well, and for Matt, and for anybody else who is serving in the military, for, and for Zach, and as they continue all to transition in some way, that your, your hands would be upon them. We thank you, Lord, for their ability to serve, for the, the calling that you have placed upon their life to serve this country of ours. We ask, Lord, that you would give our leaders wisdom. That you would break down these walls of hostility and division and foolishness, Father. And that your name would be glorified in the things that are done by those who you have put in charge over us. That they would have wisdom and insight on how it is there to lead us all the way from Washington here to Montpelier and into the local towns that you would have your hand upon the government of this country and the governments of this world and that you would pour your wisdom out and that you would open up the hearts of those who lead that they would receive that wisdom. Lord, as we enter into your word, I just ask that you would make this book alive, that it wouldn't be just words on a paper and it wouldn't be just the voice of me but that your spirit would somehow transform what it is we read on a page and the things that I say into the living word that 
cuts deep, Lord, through bone and marrow and spirit and soul, and that we would hear your voice and that we would understand what it is you call us to and what it is your story is for this world. Pray against all evil in this world, and we pray against the evil one who seeks to destroy any good thing that you have. Pray your peace upon this day. And we give you thanks, Lord, as we turn to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I think everything is tied well together this morning with the words of the songs, with the scripture that Ashley read, um, and with what we're looking at in Colossians and Ephesians today. If you would just please stand with me as we finally enter into the word here. Titled the message, just very simply, The Mystery. We're into week seven here in Ephesians, and really what I want us to focus on is we're going to continue on with God's plan of reunification. That his people Israel, along with the Gentile world, we discover today is the mystery that's been hidden from ages past, now is revealed, guess where? In him. In him. That is Jesus. So starting in verse one of chapter three, Paul tells us, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Sounds very familiar to the letter to the Colossian church as well. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the So they were wandering home after a weekend in the city. It's a weekend that would forever change their lives as they had ventured in. Still trying to figure out just exactly what had happened, they were talking to one another in a very quiet, solemn, and confused way. Everything had started so well, didn't it? Absolutely everything. The opening celebration, the fanfare, the singing, the party, everything. Coming into the city that Friday afternoon, they expected this to be the best week that they would have ever had in their life up to that point, as did many others who had gathered in the city as well. You see, there had been rumors and there had been murmurings that this would be the time, finally, this would be the time. And it certainly looked it. As everyone welcomed this man coming over the hill as king without really knowing that that's what they were doing. But it didn't end that way. It didn't end that way. And now walking slowly home, Cleopas and presumably his wife, we don't really know, but that's a good assumption, were pained. They were deeply pained. And at a loss to come to grips with the events that unfolded in the city, I want you to imagine for a moment how you would have tried to sort those events out if you were there in real time having observed everything that happened. Well, honey, I thought that he was the one. I thought that this was going to be it. All the signs were there. All the signs were there. I, I, I know, Cleo. I know. Everything he did echoed in our minds and it resonated in our hearts that he had a mission and that he was putting us on task. Each and every one of us had something it was we were supposed to do. But, but they killed him. They killed him, and that didn't seem to be the purpose of what the week looked like and how things started, did it? No, no, it didn't. It really didn't. 
and I'm confused and I'm lost. And there were so many weird sayings and thoughts in the Old Testament, as I recall, especially in Isaiah's writings that we used to have read to us. But none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. He's dead now anyway, and really, it doesn't matter, does it? Just confused. My heart aches. My mind is confused. And I'm really glad that we're going home. You see, then a stranger approaches on that road in this familiar story recorded for us in Luke chapter 24. And he says to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. The humanness of it all. Never forget, this is history. Never forget, these are real people in real time in the midst of an unbelievable story trying to figure out what happened. They stood still looking sad. In a bit of a shock and bewilderment, perhaps, they look at him and they say, well, the things that happened this weekend in the city and they've broken our hearts and we don't really know what to do and we have no idea what any of this means. Makes no sense to us. Again, put yourself in their shoes and I want you to think for a minute. How would you be dealing with this? What would your heart tell you? Would you be stirred to understanding? Would you be sad? Would you be weeping? Would you be broken? Would you be confused? You see, having just enough to go on, but not really enough to completely understand the events that had unfolded this past weekend, Cleopas turns and says, well, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem? Amazing statement. Are the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Pushing the point even further, the stranger just looks at him and asks what things you see, of all people who did know exactly what happened, it was the stranger. <laughs> to which Cleopas frustratingly responds, as I think any of us human beings would, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Hello? Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped. Can you hear the angst in that? Don't just read that as if it's just words on a page, but we had hoped hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Could you imagine being part of that mystery? Could you imagine for a moment where you thought at the outset you'd had this whole gig all figured out, but right at the end, just before the curtain goes down, right at the end something radical happens and everything turns left when you thought you were going to go right puts the entire story completely out of whack when you thought you had everything all lined up. Now all of a sudden you're sitting there in your seat and you have no idea what to do. No idea what to think, at least from your perspective where you sit. This is just what happened 2,000 years ago. And what Paul is explaining to us today in this text, in his letter to the Ephesians and the verses that we have before us, you see the mystery revealed, hidden in a way quite frankly, in plain sight and yet still shrouded. Hidden in plain sight, yet still shrouded. N.T. Wright puts it this way, God, it seems, has drawn upon the blueprint for his worldwide family right from the beginning. He had hinted that there were developments yet to come, perhaps most strongly in the prophets, particularly Isaiah, but most of his people had thought that their present calling to be his holy people and to keep the law would remain central. Now, he was letting people in on the secret, which had been laid hidden for ages and generations, and Paul himself is to be the one to take the news of it around the world. 
See, Paul, in the opening part of his letter, tells us that from prison he's writing this. Don't miss that. From prison he's writing this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's not saying, you know, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Jesus has captured my heart. He's saying, I'm in prison because of preaching Jesus. It's an unsettling notion for anyone who thinks the Christian life will be and should be God blessing your story and the things you want to do and all kinds of comfort and triumph in this world. That's not what we are called to. You see, he begins to lay out his purpose or our, he begins to lay out his purpose in life, Paul does, regardless of where he finds himself. Why? Because he is assured that God has him right where he is supposed to be, even though at this moment in time for Paul, he's behind bars. That's how confident he is in the call of God. He is in prison because of his call to be a voice to the Gentiles. Somebody who reveals the mystery that we're going to learn today. That this Jesus of Nazareth is not just Christ for the Jewish people, but he is King and Lord of the entire world. He is the anointed ruler of the world. He is the Christ, the Messiah, and not Caesar. This Jesus actually is King Regardless of what people thought of him, you see, or how they told him not to say the things he was saying and to do the things that he was doing, Paul had a calling, and that calling did not come from any person, and it did not come from Rome. It came from God, and he would be obedient to that call no matter what the cost. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, he continues, that was given to me, not for myself, but given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. See, this is very important for us to grasp. Very important to understand. Paul was a steward of God's grace, and he took this responsibility very seriously. He wasn't given this story. He wasn't given this mystery. He wasn't given the stewardship of grace for himself. He was given it for others. So to keep it to himself would have been sin. To think that nobody else deserved it would have been wrong. It's very important for us to grasp. And this is the first key for us as we take a look at this passage. Stewardship. Stewardship of the things that God gives us. It is, by definition, the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Now, we instantly think finances. Yes, of course, that's one of the things. However, for Paul... The stewardship was the mystery that God had given him that the Gentile world was now united, which we're going to unfold this and unpack this in the time that we have today. But it's also the souls of human beings whom we are responsible for, whom God gives us charge and care over, most especially pastors and teachers. It's responsibility over facilities that God makes us responsible for and why it isn't just another place we gather, but we are responsible to tend to and take care of these things. Why? Because God has blessed us with them. Being a good steward is to watch out for them. Our children. Our children are a gift from God. That's what Proverbs tells us. And we are to be good stewards of raising them and, and helping them and walking with them. Our spouse. I celebrated 30 years this Tuesday with the most beautiful woman in the world. I don't know how she stays with me. And I don't say that with a smile on my face. I got the better end of that deal. It has not been an easy 30 years, I promise you. Neither one of us are the easiest people to live with. But when we said I do 30 years ago, 55 miles north of here, I don't came off the table. 
good stewards of the marriage that we have. The ups, the downs, the goods, the bads, the sleeping on the couch, the not sleeping on the couch, all of those things. The apple crisp and bacon for dinner, I can do that now at 49, you know, thank you very much. Good stewardship. Our jobs and our vocations, never let it be said that as a Christian, where it is you work, you're the worst worker. How is Jesus seen in that? He's not. Good stewards. All these things have been entrusted to us at some level and for some reason and for some purpose. To some of us, a bit more than others. Some of us are responsible for a bit more than other people are. But stewardship, nonetheless, has been given to each and every one of us as human beings, just as it has to Paul. And Paul was entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, as we're going to discover. And at all costs, he would ensure that he was a good steward of that. For us, prayerfully seeking God, we are to see what it is he has given to us and how it is we are to handle each and every one of those things. We are not all exactly the same, and thank goodness for that. You don't want a house full of people just like me. We are all uniquely created in God's image and different. What are you called to? I say that all the time. How do you handle the gifts that God has given you to the glory of his name for the benefit of your community? You see, Paul as a leader and a pastor was sitting in prison because he knew his duty. He knew what he was a steward of. And he also knew the cost. He understood that leadership, especially pastoral leadership and ministry, can be very lonely and is extremely lonely. And it's incredibly hard. And oftentimes it's a place where those one seeks to lead find frustration in their leader on more than one occasion. You see, but to be the leader, you must lead nonetheless. That's good stewardship. Everywhere Paul went, he encountered opposition and people who were frustrated and complained. More often than not, it was those who were outside of the church, but quite frankly, it was those within as well. There were people who were never happy with Paul, and they were so unhappy with him, they followed him everywhere he went just to ensure he knew. Lovely group of folks, that's who you want to build your church with. It's like being pecked to death by a herd of geese. Everywhere he went, there they were. Accusing him of all kinds of different things. But you see, these are the things to be expected and why it is absolutely critical and essential to know what God has called you to. Because if you are operating outside of what God has called you to, it will never work because you're going to be doing it on your own strength. More on that a bit when we take a look at knowing who we are in him as we've been building on that over these weeks. But C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, if you've never read it, I suggest, you know, that you would take the time to do so. He talks about stewardship this way, that every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by who? God. Is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. So if he owns a cattle in a thousand hills, he owns my books. He owns my thoughts. He owns the things that I do. So our stewardship in a very real way at its core, simple obedience to the call that he has placed on us and to do what he has prepared for us in advance to the absolute best of our ability to his glory. Again, that's Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. You are his poem. You are his artwork created in Christ Jesus to do the works that he prepared for who? You, in advance to do. 
being a good steward. The stewardship of one's very life. What are you doing with it? And are you doing what God has designed you to do? You see, Adam in the garden was given stewardship. He was given a purpose over God's good creation. Didn't go well for him, mind you, but that was what his task was. We are given no less of a task. So those things that he has given us and made us responsible for, we must do our best every single day, the best that we can to tend to them, whatever they may be. Now we do so, we heard in the songs today, over and over and over again, we do so in and through his grace, which abounds to us, not our own effort, not our own opinions, and not our own perspectives. The minute we get our own effort, our opinion and perspectives going on, we have problems. We operate in his grace and his calling. Whatever that is for you. You ain't me, and I ain't you. As I said last week, you don't want me laying a cornerstone for any house anywhere unless you want that house to fall down. Call Rob. He's the guy to talk to, not me. What are you called to do? You see, our stewardship is seen in three things. Number one, how we receive and handle his grace toward us. That's number one. Number two, how we extend it to others in the community of believers in which we are placed. Okay? And number three, how we extend it to non-believers. That's the stewardship or the mystery that we have. If we have Jesus, how we receive it and handle his grace toward us, how we extend it to others in the community of believers, and how we extend it to non-believers. You see, to receive his grace toward us is to understand who we are in him. Paul didn't take the first two chapters to define what we've got in him because he had nothing else to do on a Tuesday watching the rats run around his cell. It was critical that we understand who we are in him. In him. This is one of the primary stumbling blocks for the believer. Hear me, please. Letting others define you. Letting others' opinion of you, good or bad. Letting your situation, how you feel on a given day, how you feel about somebody else on a given day, what your circumstances look like, and what your position in life, when you let them define who you are, when you allow that to happen, absolute chaos rules all the time. Because you're going to constantly be feeling like you're being pulled through a keyhole by a thousand different people trying to please a thousand different people because brother so-and-so's ticked at you and sister so-and-so wasn't happy that you did this and this one did that and this one doesn't think you're doing what you're... All of these things. I'm sure you've probably experienced that at some level, at some point. You can never make everybody happy. I promise you, you will feel unsettled all the time if you allow Others to define you, your situation, your circumstances, and positions. You are highly intelligent people. I mean that. Think on these things, as Alistair Begg would say. Examine yourselves and ask, is this true in your life? And I don't need to see a show of hands. The Holy Spirit knows. Ask him, is this true in your life? You see, if we worry what others think, or we let our status at that particular moment in our life define who we are and how it is we function, we are always unsettled and we are blown about by absolutely everything. It's like all three waves converging at Chatham 3. And you're tossed about totally out of control because you're allowing your situation and circumstances to divine everything. We become unsettled. 
You see, Paul, having to deal with these issues, tells the Corinthian church, and I'm convinced in a way that that thorn in his flesh that he talked about perhaps could have been this church. But I don't have enough evidence for that. I'm just beginning to assume that the older I get and the more I study. He had to deal with these issues with the Corinthian church that he cared very little what they thought. And it sounds pretty arrogant, but it's really not. Because frankly, he didn't even care what he himself thought about himself. He was so confident in who Christ made him and what his call was that he didn't even care what he thought. This is how one should regard us, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, and guess what? Stewards of the mystery of God. So he's defined the call that he has. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Faithful. Faithful to what? What they are called to steward. What they are called the steward. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Kind man. He'll be invited back next week for the benediction. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. You see, so he's checking himself. He doesn't have the audacity to think that he is perfect, but he is unaware of anything. But he's not acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Why? Because Paul is absolutely confident in who he is in Christ and what he has been called to do. So it matters very little. It was what Christ thought of him and how he was stewarding his call as a pastor, teacher, and apostle. That was what drove Paul. It was the only reason I am convinced that he had no problem being beaten and thrown into prison. If he had allowed what human beings thought about him to affect him, he would have never taken a beating for the Gentile world. He would have packed his toys up, he'd have gone home, and he'd gone back to doing what he was doing. Because he was the persecutor, not the persecuted. Okay? Instead, he's sitting in prison. Why? He doesn't care. God had assigned this task to him. He wasn't hired out, as it were, given a wage to go do something. He was called of God to be a pastor, teacher, and an apostle to the Gentiles. Being a servant to all, but not having any of those whom he served be his master. He had one master. That master is Christ that old Scottish pastor who said that I will always be your servant but you will never be my master that confused me until I understood what he was saying and I got into what it was Paul was saying this is what's going on that pastor whoever he was in Scotland 100 200 years ago understood who he was in Jesus and he would serve everybody but nobody would be his master but Christ why because it was Christ who called him see if he was pleasing to God he cared very little about what others thought including his own point of view himself Sounds arrogant, but it's not. It's not. It's an assurance of who Jesus has made you. So I care very little, if I may use Tim as an example, what Tim thinks of me. Why? Not because I don't like Tim, but because I am defined by who Jesus says I am. And Tim, I pray, doesn't really care too much about what I think about him, to put the shoe on the other foot, and he shouldn't. I want to be his friend, and we are. But the reality is, is that if we know who we are in Christ, and we are walking in what we are supposed to be walking in, it doesn't matter. 
I can serve him in the love of Christ without any effect of how he feels about me. Does that make sense? That's a difficult thing to do in this world. We talked about that last week, you know, in the performance-based world. Paul has no problem with this. You see, if we allow what other people think, our views will always be skewed. Always be skewed. We'll take off down roads we have no justification taking off down, thinking things we have no right to think and no reason to think. They just come about because we are allowing ourselves to be tossed about by the things that are going on in life. No, good stewardship. We have to get to a place like Paul was in in our walk with Jesus. It's absolutely critical. And that's the challenge for us as his people. It's the challenge for us as his people because true love doesn't function any other way. Because our insecurities can and often get the better of us. And then we do and say things out of that insecurity that just make everything even worse. It's a bad place to be. We give in to feelings. We give in to false perceptions and the bizarre thought that we have to please every single person we come into contact with on any given day. Discovering that, guess what? You can't do that. You cannot please every human being in your life doesn't happen trying to please everyone all the time means you will please absolutely no one any of the time including yourself including yourself you will find yourself so unsettled on a regular basis that you can't even see straight now i know that because i've been down that road something i struggle with trying to jump through every hoop i can jump through to make a million people happy discovering that Not only am I not making anybody else happy, I am the most miserable person you have ever met. Find my wife. She will attest to that. Just keeping it real, as they say. I'm a human being standing in front of you. You cannot please everybody all the time. It's bad stewardship of God's grace toward you. It's bad stewardship of God's grace towards me and towards the other people that you meet. Once you can settle that out in your heart that it is God alone whom you stand before to be judged, then your task in life becomes much easier. And your ability to love other human beings, irrespective of what they think about you and what they say about you and how they act towards you, becomes much easier. Much easier. You see, it's a very small thing, my ESV translation says, but the NIV captures it a little bit different. It says, I care very little if I am judged by you. That's what Paul told the Corinthian church. Now, he founded that church so let's be honest to have someone say that we would think would be arrogant and rude let's be real we wouldn't sit back and go now there's a kind fellow i want to invite back next week we would find him to be arrogant and rude we would then be offended and we would try to find a way to make that person understand that they need to care a great deal about how i feel you better care a great deal how i feel and you better operate the way i want See, Paul tells us, no, 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 no. He's a prisoner for Jesus. He's a prisoner for Jesus. A steward for God and a herald to the Gentiles. This is my function. It's not that he doesn't care about people. Hear that. Hear that. He was in prison. That's how much he cared about the Gentile people. He was suffering for their sake. But he looked at them and said, I care very little if you judge me and what you think about what I'm doing. You see, it's not 
that he doesn't care. He doesn't care about feelings based upon opinions. He cares about the stewardship of God's call. You see, when you read this, he says in verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Why is that important? Verse 5 is very helpful here. What he was proclaiming was not known to previous generations. Not that it was unavailable. It was simply that it was not known. And this is the mystery unveiled in Jesus by God through his spirit. It's important that we understand that. That's mystery. Take away the fog, as it were. Oh, you foolish ones. Another one we'd invite back on a Sunday. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning where? With Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses, many went all the way to Genesis, Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to go all the way to the end. And we're going to let the whole world know. Look, at it was there, veiled, revealing the now revealable mystery because of the resurrection that this was the plan all along, as the song we sang this morning, did it not? While it's been shrouded in a bit of fog, Act 5, new creation, finally dawns. A brand new day in this world has lifted that fog, and in him, Christ, these things are now knowable through his spirit. Through his spirit. And this Paul lays out for the believers in in Ephesus as well as for us all these years later when he says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection and the ascension of this Jesus of Nazareth, proving that he was the incarnate Son of God, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, and guess what? He is Lord and King over everything. That's the gospel. A new hope. A new hope, while it's a really cool movie, one of my favorites, we're looking at a new hope here, Paul talks about, revealing the one new man. And that one new man has been made, and it has been the plan all along in order that the world be reached for Jesus. That's the plan from the beginning. This wasn't plan B. The plan to bring the Gentiles into fellowship with himself. Those fractured people on the plains of Shinar, as you recall, last week kind of went pear-shaped and built all their stuff. Doing so in equal terms with God's called-out people, the people of Israel, uniting together as the people of God. The good news, this gospel is that he has accomplished it through Jesus of Nazareth, his son, our Messiah, and this world's king. So I want to give you an example. Read the last of the text, and then we'll close. So imagine hearing about a family on the upper end of town. You pick the town. Always acting a bit weird and standoffish, never really wanting anybody around that wasn't part of the family, looking down their nose at everyone. And you hear that the oldest has just inherited a billion dollars from his father because his father has just passed away. The headline the next day in the paper reads, when you go to get it, the entire town is invited to the reading of the will up on the hill. Going and thinking all the while, Why am I wasting my time here? These people have always been a wee bit strange and wanted nothing to do with us and couldn't stand us anyway, always looking down their nose, flaunting their snotty special status to us and all of that stuff. We go anyway, discovering when we get there that in the reading of the will, there was a provision all along that made very little sense in the small fine print, as it were, until now. 
when the other piece was pulled out and the explanation of the fine print was given to everyone there. Everyone living in the town who was not part of this hilltop family is now, if they want to, adopted as full family members and will each inherit a piece of that $1 billion. Absurd? Absolutely. No human family would ever do that. No one in this world would do that. This world has no desire for that type of stuff or to offer such foolishness. But God does. You see, God does. This is what the Gentile world was being told. This is exactly what the Gentile world was being told by this prisoner, by this steward, by this herald entrusted with the task of sharing with the Gentiles that in fact there is a kingdom, there is a city, and there is a table at which in Christ you are now invited to sit and join in the feast. You don't know this, Jesus. The Bible tells us today is the day. Now is the accepted hour. Because the fog has been lifted. The signposts of the law and the prophets are seen very clearly and Paul is telling the church, I have been made a herald of this truth. I could have the worship team. You see, quoting right again out of his commentary, he says, thus, in this circular to churches in the Ephesus area who didn't know him personally, he wants to make sure that they know where he fits into the millennia-old purposes of the one true God. He may be in jail, as verse 1 indicates, but his vision is as free as the wind and as wide as the horizon. That's a beautiful way to put what the gospel is to the Gentiles that his vision is as free as the wind and as wide as the horizon. And he wants everyone who reads this letter then and now to share the vision and join the work. We were not called to hide away. We were called to be good stewards of what it is Jesus has given us in and through his spirit. I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you with all of the things that have been said today. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. He speaks to me. This stuff, I preach to myself all week long. You hear it once. I got to write this. I got to get ripped apart all week long, and then I got to put it together. So I'm just as convicted in my heart about the areas that I need to give over to the Lord and the areas that I'm missing the mark. I say that to encourage you that we are in this trip together. We are all in the same boat. We have all missed the mark. And Jesus has fixed it for all of us. If you would but come to him, if we could please stand. If I could have the prayer teams go to where it is they go. For those of you who are here for the first time, we have folks standing in the back if you're a bit uncomfortable to come up front. And then we have folks who are up front. And I want to encourage you, most especially if you have not had an encounter with this Jesus, the way that the Bible tells us that we give our hearts over to him and we say Lord I want you to take over my life I know that I've blown it I've missed the mark I'm not going to not going to be able to do it I want to encourage you that there are people here who are waiting to pray with you step out share your heart with them this is a safe place to be this is a good place to be allow them to pray with you 
for anybody else here who's holding on to stuff, you know what that stuff is. If you're holding on to it, I want to encourage you, step out. Give it over to the Lord. Ask him to take it, to sort it out, remind you of what he has made you and what he has called you to be as a human being in his plan. You are perfectly created in his sight. He has made you his poem, and he has work for you to do. I want to challenge you. Get the prayer you need before you leave this morning. Norma.